1: this episode is brought to you by our patreon members thank you so much and if you're not a member
0: consider joining members get extra episodes just for patreon subscribers and all our episodes ad free
1: membership starts at just two dollars a month go to patreon.com/ ancient history fangirl for more info and as always thanks for listening the German cavalry strikes again!
0: It's the 30th day of the siege. 30 days since you gathered your cavalry, opened the city gates in the middle of the night and bade them run. You told them to raise up the armies of free Gaul, any who can hold a sword. You told them to use persuasion and force and trickery, call the spirits of the ancestors up from the ground. Do whatever it takes. Do not fail me, you told them. All of this depends on you now. It's been 30 days since you've sent them and they haven't returned with reinforcements. You pace the walls, looking out over the enemy siege works and toward the glowing horizon, and you wonder if you'll die here. Far below, you hear Caesar's builders furiously working, toppling trees and raising earthworks, digging trenches and flooding them with water. When the last great armies of free Gaul rise, if they rise, the Romans will be ready. They're walling themselves in, rings within and rings without, a rampart before them to imprison your people and a rampart behind them to keep out reinforcements. Beyond that, a mazework of ditches and breastworks and walls of bristling spikes. The sound of their work fills the city, morning, noon, and night. And the building isn't the only sound you hear. Far below, between the city wall and the innermost Roman battlement, you can see the women and children, the old and the sick, all those who could not hold a sword, all those who had lived in the city before your army came. They've already begun to die. No part of you wanted this. You held out, fed the civilians of this city as long as you could, until the food supply dwindled and your warriors began to starve. Soon the chieftains were watching the civilians like starving men watching a side of beef. It took surprisingly little time for one of them to bring up cannibalism. Let the ones who could not fight die to feed the ones who could. You thought you were giving the civilians the best of chances. You cannot keep them here. You aren't even sure how long you can protect them from your own hungry chieftains. If the Romans do not take them, you thought, surely Caesar will let them pass. But Caesar would not take slaves, and he would not let them pass. Now they're dying in the no-man's land between walls, women and children and non-combatants, dying by the thousands of hunger and exposure, all in the sight of your warriors. For some, these were their families. Not even you could have predicted the depths of Caesar's cruelty or your own. This wasn't the worst thing you've done for the sake of your people, and you may do worse before this ends. It surprises you sometimes how clearly you see the trade-offs, how quickly you make the decisions. You tell yourself you have no choice, not if you want to save them. You pace the walls. At your back, the storerooms are empty. Your people are starving. Inside the city, sanity hangs by a thread. You pray to the gods that free Gaul will rise one more time, that there is anyone left to rise. You pace the walls you watch the horizon, you wait.
1: I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy, And this is Ancient History Fangirl. This episode is a whole divided into three parts. In the first part, we sent Julius Caesar hurtling with all the destructive power of a meteor into the ancient, proud warrior culture of Free Gaul. We talked about his reasons for going. We met some of the brave tribes and leaders who initially stood against him and fell.
0: And in the second episode, we met the last great hope of the Gauls, a leader named Vercingetorix. You should probably listen to those two episodes before this one if you want to know what's going on.
1: Before this, we also set the stage with two episodes on the life of Caesar leading up to the Gallic Wars, and two episodes on Gallic archaeology and Celtic myth, so that before you get the story of the Gallic Wars, you know exactly who all the players are, and you've heard some of their stories.
0: So now that we've got that out of the way, we're going to move on. It's September of 52 BC. Vercingetorix has been in the field for less than a year, and already he's made great progress, mainly by kicking the Roman army where it really hurt, the stomach. Ouch. Right. Rather than risking an open confrontation, Vercingetorix has been waging a guerrilla war, harassing the Roman supply lines, picking them off in small groups when they venture out to forage, and most importantly, burning their own cities, fields, homes, and grain supplies so that there would be nothing to forage. To get out of this alive, Vercingetorix was willing to sacrifice everything. And it was working. After Caesar's loss at Gregovia, which we talked about in our previous episode, the Roman army was suffering, and Vercingetorix upped the pressure. While Caesar's army was on the move, Vercingetorix attacked the supply train, which was always an extremely vulnerable point for a traveling army in hostile territory. By attacking the supply chain, Vercingetorix was forcing a terrible choice on Caesar. Abandon the baggage and run, or up the guard around the supply wagons and slow his whole army to a crawl. Vercingetorix's warriors took a sacred vow that no man among them would go under a roof or visit their children, wives, or parents until they had ridden twice through the enemy's army.
1: It's a tall order, guys.
0: It's kind of like a a thing about this warrior culture. like They would have been prone to making these grandiose oaths because that was part of who they were.
1: Yeah, and they were going to stick to it, too. It wasn't just an empty, hollow promise. They weren't going anywhere until they'd done what they set out to do.
0: No, these people were epic people who lived epic lives.
1: Absolutely. But Vercingetorix made a misstep. He'd gotten a little too aggressive in attacking Caesar's supply chain. In doing that, he risked an all out confrontation. Caesar threw his own elite German cavalry into the mix. They forced the Gallic cavalry to retreat and sent them crashing back into their own infantry. Remember, the infantry were the foot soldiers, so hundreds of cavalry soldiers on the Gallic side smashed into their own infantry in full retreat, and that meant a lot of people got trampled and probably killed. It would have been total chaos. was a huge morale blow to the Gallic army because they placed great faith in their cavalry. And this also goes back to the warrior culture and everything we've talked about in the earlier episodes. Their cavalry was their pride and joy. It was their best of the best. Their elite warriors and champions. Exactly. And their elite warriors and champions have now been thrown back at their infantry, their foot soldiers. And in this panic that they're in, they're trampling their foot soldiers. Like, If their cavalry can't take on the German cavalry, this means that like the best of their best are kind of saying they're not good enough. That's terrifying.
0: Yeah, and that's the reason that Vercingetorix has been going out of his way to avoid all-out confrontations so much, because he knows that this is what's going to happen. He knows that his army's outmatched.
1: So in the confusion, Vercingetorix was forced to retreat to the town of Alesia. Alesia was a fortified town on a high hill with two rivers running by on different sides. Its defensive position was very strong, and Caesar knew a direct frontal assault would be suicidal. But there There were approximately 80,000 fighting men in the city now, as well as civilians, the people who already lived in Elysia. The Gauls had strength in numbers, but that was also a weakness because the larger the army, the less time it would take to starve. And as we talked about in the earlier episodes, this was a scorched earth policy war. So the tighter and tighter these armies get to facing each other, the less and less supplies there are and the less and less supplies they can get.
0: The problem is that the scorched earth tactics hurt everyone. And a lot of the time in these battles, what you see is that the winning and losing side comes down to who's got more food, who's got more staying power.
1: Caesar had his legions put their swords down and pick up their spades. He built epic siege works, a wall 11 miles around with 23 small forts spread around the wall and several large camps. His plan wasn't to take the town so much as to blockade the enemy inside and let them starve. First in Gutterix, seeing what was happening, sent his cavalry down to harass the builders. But the effort resulted in a panicked rout when Caesar sent his elite German cavalry to counter them. And again, remember, they just fought the German cavalry and they were like, no, these guys are really serious like, we can't do this again. (laughs) No, the elite German cavalry. Oh, no. So over 10,000 Gallic troops were driven back, and many had to abandon their horses to scramble through a mazework of defensive ditches and flee up the hill to safety. But Vercingetorix had ordered the gate shut. Thousands of panic Gauls were slaughtered. I mean, that is hardcore. It really is do or die.
0: Vercingetorix was in a bad position. He saw Caesar digging in for a very protracted siege, and he knew he didn't have enough food to keep his people alive for long. So he gathered his cavalry together and said, look, the situation here is grim. We have food for maybe 30 days, maybe less. So here's what I need from all of you. Go back to your homes recruit more warriors, everyone old enough to hold a weapon. If you fail, I'll die here. My death will be on your conscience. And so will the deaths of 80,000 chosen men. Do not fail us. The fate of free Gaul rests on your shoulders. Then he opened the gate in the middle of the night and told them, run. And I can just imagine Vercingetorix standing on the ramparts, watching as practically his entire cavalry, all of his best of the best, broke through the gaps in the uncompleted siege works, not knowing if they would ever return. It also left him without the ability to harass Caesar's troops while they built their own defenses. He had to let them build unimpeded now. It was a hideous gamble, but he didn't have a choice. Vercingetorix's next step was to seize control of the food supply. He counted it out, distributed survival rations, set guards, and let it be known that any who tried to take more more than their own would be punished by death. Then he pulled in his people locked down the town and prepared for a protracted siege.
1: Caesar meanwhile, kept on working. He knew that now, with reinforcements coming, he'd have to wage war on both sides. He had to do something drastic. There was already a wall 11 miles in circumference, blockading the Gauls in the town. Caesar built another wall, 14 miles around at his army's back, plus ditches, moats, earthworks, and traps. His troops were now enclosed by walls on both sides, one to keep the Gauls in, the other to keep the Gauls out, which, is kind of confusing, but if you think about it this way, there's inside Gauls in the town and outside Gauls who are going to come and get them from outside the walls.
0: Right, inside Gauls and outside Gauls. Exactly.
1: If Vercingetorix's cavalry came back with reinforcements at all, they would have to navigate a series of lethal booby traps and a maze of ditches to get to the Romans. Meanwhile, Vercingetorix paced the walls, watching the horizon while his food supply dwindled quickly. Finally, the day came when Vercingetorix expected reinforcements to arrive. And then it passed. And things in the city were starting to get tense. I mean, starting. They were incredibly, incredibly tense. All the food was gone. It had been more than 30 days, and nobody knew if reinforcements were coming or when, and people were starving and desperate.
0: Vercingetorix called a council of his chieftains. Some of them called to surrender to the Romans. Others wanted to ride out and bring the battle to them in an all-out assault. One chieftain, Critognatus proposed a third way. This is what he said. Quote, "I shall pay no attention to the opinion of those who call a most disgraceful surrender. Nor do I think that they ought to be considered as citizens or summoned to the council." He didn't think people who wanted to surrender to the Romans even deserved to be there.
1: I know, he's like, "Well, they have no voice. Out you go."
0: Right. Sit down, you guys. My business is with those who approve of a sally, in whose advice the memory of our ancient prowess seems to dwell. Let us, in adopting our design, look back on all Gaul which we have stirred up to our aid. What courage do you think what our relatives and friends have if 80,000 men were butchered in one spot, supposing that they should be forced to come to an action almost over our corpses? Do you doubt their fidelity and firmness because they have not
1: come at the appointed day? They're getting there as quickly as they can. Some of these tribes had to range really far afield to get back to where they came from and to then convince their people. Or to find enough
0: people to actually make a difference. You know, I'm sure that close by there are not a lot of people who already aren't part
1: of one of these armies. Exactly. And also, Vercingetorix is losing. There had to be a lot of spin to get people to come and rescue his ass.
0: Exactly. He went on to say, Do you suppose that the Romans are employed every day in the outer fortifications for mere amusement? If you cannot be assured by their dispatches, since every avenue is blocked up, take the Romans as evidence that their approach is drawing near, since they, intimidated by an alarm at this, labor night and day at their works. So he's saying, Look, I'm not even going to talk to you if you think we should surrender. If you think we should fight, we're going to get clobbered. And how do you think our friends and family are going to feel? who rallied to our cause to come and rescue us if they show up to find stacks of 80,000 bodies that they now have to fight the Romans over. We have to hold out for them, is what he's saying. And if you think that our allies aren't coming, we have no way of knowing since the the lines of communication are blocked off, but look at how hard the Romans are working. They must be scared. They must have reason to be working this hard.
1: They must know something we don't know. And if they know it, then we need to believe that it's gonna happen.
0: Right, we need to hold out because they're coming. Then he goes on to say this, quote, What, therefore, is my design? to do as our ancestors did in the war against the Cimbri and the Teutones, who when driven into their towns and oppressed by similar privations supported life by the corpses of those who appeared useless for war the Cimbri after laying Gaul to waste and inflicting great calamities at length departed from our country and sought other lands they left us our rights laws, lands, and liberty but what other motive or wish have the Romans than to settle in the lands of those they have conquered and impose on them perpetual slavery for they never have carried on wars on any other terms look to the neighboring Gaul, which being reduced to the form of a province, stripped of its rights and laws, and subjected to Roman despotism, is oppressed, by perpetual slavery. I mean, this is just an incredible speech. He's calling for cannibalism. He's saying we've got to hold out because we can't let our friends and family show up and just find all of our bodies here and risk their lives over that. And the only way we can hold out is by killing the people who are not warriors to support the warriors. It's absolutely horrifying. It's such a
1: horrifying choice to make. And my heart's a little bit broken already. I know what's going to happen. This is not for the faint of heart this episode.
0: Yeah. And he reminds them of the stakes. Lost. Loss of society, loss of home, loss of family, loss of everything they are, perpetual slavery.
1: Instead of agreeing to cannibalism, Burst and Getorix opened the gates and put the non-combatants out of the city into the no-man's land between Alesia's ramparts and the Roman wall. These were the original citizens of Alesia, the people who'd let the army into their town in the first place. Women, children, non-combatants, the elderly the sick, all those who couldn't fight, starving and defenseless. They went to the inner Roman wall to be taken as slaves or just allowed to pass through the territory. And you can sort of see that from Vercingetorix's point of view. This was giving them the best possible chance. If they stayed in the town, they'd starve if they weren't killed and eaten first. People were already calling for the non-combatants to be killed for food. The Romans were known for taking slaves, and while that would be an absolutely horrible fate, at least the civilians would be fed and have a chance at being alive.
0: Right, and we're not saying that being taken as a slave is in any way a good fate at all. That is, nope, that is a terrible fate. And obviously Vercingetorix wouldn't have wanted that, but he was faced with an impossible choice.
1: He was faced with, my men are going to eat the women and children of this city that let us in with open arms. So the only way that I can remove that temptation from them and these aggrandizing speeches about what we should do with cannibalism is to put these people out of my walls.
0: And I just hope that the Romans show a sliver of mercy. Not to say that slave taking is merciful.
1: Yeah, because these are women and children. 80,000 men showed up at their gates. And really, they said, let them in. And what were their options? Not let them in? How are they going to fight them off? I mean, it's just, it's impossible.
0: Right. Everybody is stuck in a horrible situation here.
1: But the Romans had their own mouths to feed and they said no thanks and kept their own gates shut. And the women, children, sick and elderly of Alesia were left to die of exposure or starvation in the no man's land between the Roman fortifications and the walls of their own town.
0: Yeah, so this is the part of the battle I could never get out of my head. Thousands of women and children and non-combatants haunting this space between walls as the battle raged around them. It gets surprisingly little attention. I first found out about it when I visited Elysia, which is in France. You can visit it. And if you go there today, like I remember I went there on this beautiful sunny day. It was like in May or something. There's a really nice interpretive center. There's some reconstructed earthworks and walls and things. It's kind of just a big field now. And I remember walking through this interpretive center and reading all the plaques because I love a good interpretive plaque. And there was a sentence about it somewhere in the museum, and I just couldn't stop thinking about it. And I don't know what happened to these people. And I watched at least one documentary that states that Vercingetorix relented after a while and let the civilians back in. Caesar in his commentaries doesn't mention what happened to the people. And Cassius Dio tells us, quote, these perished most miserably between the city and the camp because neither party would receive them. And I don't know. Jen, I feel like, okay, what do we know about Vercingetorix? I think he would be ruthless enough to stay resolute here and not let the civilians back
1: in. I don't know that it's even ruthless. this point. What is the alternative? By letting the civilians in, his men will absolutely cook and eat them. They're starving, these people are useless to them, and they are really concerned that the only way that they're going to win and hold out for this other army is if they keep up their strength. So they're going to commit atrocities if he lets them back in. Like, there is nothing in the city to eat. You get to a point where you can't even boil your your horse saddle. You know, you you get to a point where even that's gone. And also, like, there's probably a lot of nutritional deficiency which do impact the brain and make you think things that you might not otherwise think.
0: And we know from the How to Survive a Siege episodes that this is a pretty common thing that would happen, is that eventually the starving people inside a city would resort to cannibalism. It was not even
1: unusual. So, and then, three days later, just as they had lost all hope, the defenders of Elysia woke up to an incredible sight. The great army of Gaul, 258,000 strong, filled the Elysian plain, Beyond the Roman defenses, the reinforcements had arrived but not in time to save the people trapped in between the walls. Like, I just want to stress that again. Those people, done for.
0: Whatever happens next, remember that there are civilians in the no man's land between the city and the inner Roman defenses. They're there the whole time, even when there's a battle going on.
1: This enormous army was made up of an alliance of dozens of tribes, some of which had until recently fought for Caesar. It was led by four chieftains, one of whom was Vercingetorix's cousin. Another, Commius, had been a loyal ally of Caesar as recently as last year. He had actually been appointed king of his tribe by Caesar himself. But now, now he's on Vercingetorix's team. <laughs>
0: Speaking of Caesar, he'd finished with his defenses by now, and here's what the United Armies of Free Gaul would have to face to reach the Elysian defenders. Caesar's army was enclosed by walls on both sides, an inner wall to blockade the defenders and an outer wall to keep out the reinforcements. And long before the reinforcements got to that outer wall, they'd have to navigate a vast plain studded with caltrops and spikes hung with iron hooks and five-foot-deep pits lined with sharpened stakes at the bottom, camouflaged with leaves and branches on top. Caesar's troops had given these cute little nicknames— the pits were lilies because of the greenery at the top. The hook spikes were called spurs. I guess these were probably
1: catchier in Latin? Probably. Or there was probably like some double entendre there.
0: Right. There's some kind of double entendre that we're completely missing. So the caltrops, by the way, I just have to talk about these. These are an ancient anti-personnel device. They're kind of like, I don't know how to describe them. They're like a little spiky thingy, right? They're a thingy.
1: They're like a little tripod of death.
0: Right, that's actually a really good way to describe it. They're made up of four sharp nails all pointing in different directions so that no matter which way the caltrops falls, one of the nails is always pointing up. If you have enough of them, they're crippling against both infantry and cavalry.
1: Whoever made it through the booby traps alive without breaking their horse's legs or getting impaled on stakes would then have to navigate a system of three trenches, the outer one 15 feet wide, the middle one flooded with water diverted from a nearby river, and an inner one 20 feet wide wide and 20 feet deep, with sides straight up and down, all while taking heavy fire from the Roman artillery towers built every 80 yards along the outer Roman wall.
0: You know what we need here, Jen? I think we need someone who can do the salmon leap. Exactly!
1: Oh, where where's Kirk Holland when we need him?
0: Where are all of the salmon leapers in this army?
1: Relegated to mythology, Jenny Williamson.
0: Sorry to hear that.
1: <laughs> Sorry, I'm also in ancient Ireland.
0: Time and space and reality. That is where the salmon
1: <laughs> leapers are. If the Gauls on the outside, and we're going to call them the outside Gauls because it gets really confusing really quickly. So if the outside Gauls did reach that outer wall, they'd find it was built on a tall earthen ramp. And in front of it, the Romans had driven several lines of fire-hardened stakes into the ground, all pointing upward at an angle toward an incoming charge. It looked grim and also pointy. Elysia was kind of very pointy at this point in time.
0: The outside Gauls immediately took the offensive with a great roar to alert the defenders to their plan, the defenders being the inside Gauls who are inside the city. The sight of them filling the plain for miles must have filled the inside Gauls with a renewed will to fight. In response, Vercingetorix sent his own warriors out of the town and toward the inner Roman wall. The plan was to coordinate a joint attack on the outer and inner defenses. The battle raged from noon to sunset amidst a thick, deadly hail of slings and arrows from both sides. There was no clear winner until Caesar sent in his German cavalry at the last minute. The inside Gauls were driven back into the town and the outside Gauls back from the walls.
1: I mean, the German cavalry strikes again.
0: We've got to talk about the German cavalry at this point, right? There are actually two specific things about this battle I want to unpack here and the first one is the German cavalry. They've shown up twice before in this episode, once beating the Gallic cavalry back from Caesar's supply lines, and again, driving them away from the Roman defenses at Elysia. The pattern is this. Caesar holds them back until the last minute, and just when it looks like he's lost, he sends them in to save the day. And one thing you have to remember here is that the Roman army isn't just made up of Romans. There are a lot of Gallic auxiliaries here, recruited from allies. There are maybe three Roman allies left in Free Gaul at this point, and members of the Roman army proper, mostly Gauls living in Cisalpine or Transalpine Gaul, which, remember, are Roman provinces. And finally, there are hostages from different tribes who've been forced to fight for the Romans. Some of those might have had Stockholm Syndrome by this point. And remember, Caesar has been sort of gallivanting around northern Gaul, taking all these hostages from prominent families. So some of them are members of those families. And then there were the Germans.
1: These Germans were recruited from defeated tribes Caesar had encountered on his six-year rampage throughout Gaul. He's the worst. I feel like I can't just say it enough. Some of the Germans were traveling mercenaries, looking for wealth and glory by fighting for a strong chieftain, Roman or Gallic. It didn't matter to them as long as they were winning and presumably being paid. Others had originally been hostages. Some were from the Suave, Ariovistus's people, battle-hardened tribesmen, heavily armed, and superb horseback riders.
0: Right, we talked about them in the first episode on the
1: Gallic Wars. Caesar had started assembling them his first year in Gaul, probably from hostages he took from Ariovistus' Suave. He liked them so much he replaced their small, tough little ponies, I love tough little ponies, with larger, tougher horses used in his own cavalry. And this was basically supercharging them. There were between 400 and a thousand of these elite cavalry not many compared to the vast numbers deployed in this conflict but They were lethal fighters who worked in perfect concert. And they saved Caesar's ass again and again and again and again. And they were also kind of show-offs. I mean, you're comparing these big, fancy horses that are kind of like literally dancing rings at this point in time around the little Gallic ponies. To me, I love the tough little ponies, but, like, Caesar's horses, they feel like kind of show-offs to me. Like, they feel like dressage horses. Right. So imagine that th-
0: <laughs> these are between 400 and 1,000 German dressage riders. <laughs> Obviously, the Gauls have no chance because dressage, right? Like horse dancing. It's, it's like a lot of complicated maneuvers that you do on a horse. And it actually has its basis in the maneuvers that people used to train their horses for during war. Really? Yeah. So it's actually not that far off. <laughs>
1: To say that these might have been Germanic dressage cavalry. (laughs) Do you mean like I actually made a point that wasn't as ridiculous as it sounded in my head?
0: No, that was, it actually kind of made a little bit of sense.
1: Oh man, guys. (laughs)
0: Every so often the things that are just in the tops of our heads make a little bit of sense. I'm not going to say they make a lot of sense.
1: These were horses that were really able to maneuver a lot better. They were a lot bigger than the Gallic cavalry.
0: And more endurance maybe, I'm not sure.
1: Yeah, and they would have been terrifying. And also remember, the Gallic numbers are kind of limited and then all of a sudden they think they're winning and Caesar's like oh guys you remember these horses you remember these soldiers they're back again because I know you can't beat them and then they come out with their ribbons and their wonderful music blaring as they win all the golds and their tops and tails (laughs) formal attire
0: (laughs) it is a bad scene okay so that's the German cavalry there's another thing I want to mention here and that is the shouting all the shouting right so in this battle we have two Gallic armies the army within and the army without, the outside Gauls and the inside Gauls. And between them, we have the Roman lines, which are completely locked down. There's no communication getting back and forth. So how did these two armies communicate to coordinate their attacks? You see them doing it in the commentaries actually by shouting at each other. And that isn't as ridiculous as it sounds. It's not. It's really not. Because as we said, they were separated by the Roman lines and all these giant walls and ditches and booby traps and stuff. But even so, 250,000 people all screaming at once can make a lot of noise but here's another detail that i just love the commentaries also mention trumpets and i recognize this these can be none other than the legendary carnix. yes right? The enormous wind instruments, as many as 12 feet long, that the Gauls used to communicate in battle. We've already included this quote in our episode about the Gauls that I'm about to read you, but it's worth repeating the sound of the carnix in battle from someone who was there, Polybius, a Greek chronicler, who died about 18 years before Caesar was born. He traveled in Gaul before the Gallic Wars, and at some point, he must have stood close enough to a Gallic army in battle to be deafened by the sound. Here's how he describes it. Quote, There were countless trumpeters and hornblowers, and since the whole army was shouting its war cries at the same time, there was such a confused sound that the noise seemed to come not only from the trumpeters and the soldiers, but also from the countryside which was joining in the echo.
1: This must have been the sound of the Gallic army from within and from without. On all sides the Romans would have been surrounded by the sounds of their enemies, screams, and battle cries, and beneath it all the booming song of trumpets shaking the earth, as if the land itself had risen up in rebellion. Think of how the ground would have shook.
0: Yeah, think Think of the walls of Elysia, the sound of these trumpets, like the earth, echoing off of these walls and just booming down into that valley.
1: Yeah, and everything would have been just so echoed because the Romans had built themselves into this little, like, tiny space. I mean, it wasn't that tiny, but you know what I mean.
0: Well, they'd built themselves with these walls on both sides that must have just been an echo chamber.
1: So... That was the first battle. The Gauls were defeated, but they weren't deterred. The outside Gauls retreated to their camp at sunset. There, they regrouped and spent hours building what they would need for their next attempt. Ladders, hurdles, and iron grappling hooks. Then, the outside Gauls moved at midnight under the cover of dark, sneaking up beneath the Roman walls. Just before the attack, they raised an immense shout, luring the inside Gauls to mount a joint attack.
0: And here again, you see the communication problem these two armies had. Vercingetorix had no way of knowing what his people on the outside were doing, he had to scramble to respond. He ordered his carnices played to alert his own troop to attack at the same point in the Roman internal line, and the great booming war cry of the Carnix echoed from the walls of Elysia, telling the defenders to mobilize. Meanwhile, the outside Gauls were scaling the Roman wall under a heavy hail of slings, stones, spears, and arrows. But the attack wasn't as effective as it could have been because Vercingetorix couldn't mobilize his own troops fast enough on the other side.
1: So here's where Caesar's booby traps were starting to bite. The outside Gauls were stepping on the cal traps and falling into pits lined with stakes. Many of these were concealed by foliage. Thousands of men and horses were impaled and had to be left behind to die a horrible death in the pits as the outside Gauls were forced to retreat. The screams echoing off that battlefield must have been blood-curdling. The outside Gauls, despite outnumbering and surrounding the Romans, were getting their asses handed to them. They had to do better. They retreated into camp once again, and before they made a new plan, they consulted with people who knew the lay of the land, captives and deserters from the Roman army. They found out there was a weak point in the outer wall, a gap where an inconveniently placed hill interrupted the Roman line. Vercingetorix's cousin led 60,000 hand-picked men, the best of the best. They snuck around the place where the wall broke. I guess 60,000 men can sneak around. I don't know. They were all professional sneakers.
0: They were all professional sneakers. There were 60,000 of them handpicked for their sneaking ability.
1: These 60,000 professional sneakers were sneaking around while the rest of the army launched distractionary attacks elsewhere along the walls.
0: So, for some reason, like I said, the Romans didn't notice the 60,000 men just decamping to the most vulnerable spot on their walls because these were professional sneakers and they did not fuck around.
1: They did not fuck around.
0: Nope. Nobody in this episode fucks around.
1: Maybe Caesar was like, I'm just gonna let the German cavalry do some dressage for a bit.
0: Well, maybe they're just busy with their dressage competition inside the wall. Anyway, Vercingetorix, however, was occupying higher ground than the Romans did, and he noticed because he was paying attention. He didn't know exactly what his cousin had planned, that's uh, one of the leaders of the outside Gaul army, but he could guess. He readied his own army, arming them with long hooks and siege-breaking weapons. It went down at high noon. Both sides attacked at once, where the Roman lines were the most vulnerable. The Romans were caught off guard, strung out along a 14-mile circle, their armies spread out to counterattacks in various places. They had to scramble. The scene was one of chaos. Roman soldiers were running everywhere. The outside Gauls were heaping up enormous earthen ramps to get over the walls and bypass the booby traps. The defenses were starting to break, and the Roman troops were hanging by a thread.
1: Meanwhile, Vercingetorix was personally leading the attack from the inside, tearing down ramparts and breastworks, knocking defenders out of turrets with a hail of arrows and slingstones, and generally raising hell. And Caesar knew this time he couldn't just lead from afar. He had to join the fray as well. Quote,
0: Hold up, Caesar has something aggrandizing to say. Here we go. It's from the commentaries, guys. (laughs) Jen, why don't you hit us with some Caesar talking about himself in the third person? Oh, can I? Might I have that privilege? (laughs) No, please, please do. Be my guest. Okay.
1: Quote, His arrival was known through the color of his cloak, which he always wore in battle as a distinguishing mark. And the troops of cavalry and the cohorts which he had ordered to follow him were also visible because from the higher parts of the hill, these downward slopes and dips could be seen.
0: Tell us about the slopes and dips, Caesar.
1: They're downward. (laughs) i'm still quoting here guys then the enemy joined battle both sides cheered and the cry was taken up by a shout from the men within the fortifications and ramparts and i just i have to say both sides cheered can we just can we just stop
0: and talk about that yeah so caesar is saying that even the gauls were cheering because caesar has entered the fray
1: Apparently, Caesar's arrival just turns the tide of battle. Everyone's so glad to see him, even the Gauls. Everyone is so glad at this point. We're again reminding you: this is from the commentaries written in third person, which you know Caesar was writing about himself as it was happening.
0: Of course, he's going to tell everyone that this is what happened.
1: Exactly. So a great slaughter ensued of sixty thousand Gallic picked men. The best of the best few made it back to their camp alive, but of course they cheered when Caesar got on the battlefield.
0: I mean, because it meant a uh, honorable death was imminent.
1: Yeah, and I can kind of believe that. I can kind of believe that they would be like, fine, at least we've done so much to antagonize Caesar that the coward has to come out from behind his walls and face us man a man. Maybe that's what he means here. Or maybe they're cheering at a chance to beat up
0: on this guy. I mean, that makes sense too.
1: Maybe. But I also just don't believe that they cheered because he came out in his fancy red cloak or whatever the hell he was wearing.
0: I mean, I think that Caesar's doing a little bit of aggrandizing here is what I think.
1: I mean, no. Shocker. Nobody writes about themselves in the third person to be anything other than modest, Jenny. He's just telling it like it is. Just the facts. Yes. And he's removed himself from the story and he's made himself third person so that he can be as modest as humanly possible. It's completely dispassionate and not subjective at all. No, and there is no aggrandizement happening. Not at all. If you can't get that sarcasm, guys, I can't. Sarcasm dripping from your earbuds,
0: like my embusa poison. Jen's embusa poison is actually just sarcasm. <laughs> <laughs> so, Vercingetorix called another tribal meeting, and these meetings were getting increasingly tense, which is possibly the understatement of the century. The reality was this: they were out of food. Three times the reinforcements had battered themselves against the Roman ramparts, and three times they'd. Lim- home, torn and bloody. There was no way an army that size could stay in the field with the landscape already burned out and picked clean. The fight was over. The only chance was to surrender and hope for favorable terms. Vercingetorix said, quote, that he had undertaken that war not on account of his own exigencies, but on account of their freedom. And since he must yield to fortune, he offered himself to them for either purpose, whether they
1: should wish to atone to the Romans by his death or surrender him alive. Vercingetorix then took the initiative and opened negotiations for surrender. He sent ambassadors to Caesar, ordered his chieftains to throw down their arms and rode out of the lost city with his head held high. Caesar doesn't describe the scene of Vercingetorix's surrender in his commentaries. He needs Vercingetorix to look just heroic enough to aggrandize Caesar by his defeat, but not so heroic as to upstage him. But luckily, here's where Plutarch has our backs.
0: A lot of the other ancient writers who tell us about the commentaries, there's Plutarch, there's Suetonius, there's Cassius Dio, for example. A lot of those writers are basically drawing from the commentaries to tell us about Caesar's time in Gaul. And you can see the influence there. But every so often you come across a detail that one of them gives us that isn't from the commentaries. And this is one of them. It's a rare and important detail that we actually don't get from Caesar.
1: Quote, and the leader of the whole war Vercingetorix, after putting on his most beautiful armor and decorating his horse, rode out through the gate he made a circuit around Caesar, who remained seated, and then, leaped down from his horse, stripped off his seat of armor and seating himself at Caesar's feet remained motionless, until he was delivered up to be kept in custody for the triumph, and I can just imagine what that scene would have looked like you know, Vercingetorix comes out in the shining armor, his mustache is glorious and waxed, and he is proud and he is unbroken and he circles around Caesar and then he jumps off his horse and he does the only thing he can do in this situation. He strips off his armor he lays down his weapons and says okay, we surrender.
0: He's giving his people some dignity to take with them. Like, they're surrendering but they're not broken.
1: Exactly. And he's not going out in bloody armor. He's not going out looking haggard. He's going out looking put together and like the epic warrior king he was. Sometimes Vercingetor
0: is a little bit difficult because he's forced to make such brutal decisions. But then you come across a detail like this, and it's so amazingly courageous and selfless because he's basically sacrificing
1: himself. He's like, "Well, maybe the Romans will take me and give you guys some mercy."
0: Yeah.
1: Hello, everyone. Takuu here, and I'm Gabby, and we are the
0: hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is well
1: Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. So after this, the rest of the rebellious tribes fell like dominoes before the might of Rome. Everyone capitulated, including the Adri and the Iverni. Caesar stationed his legion throughout Gaul and declared the whole of it a Roman province. Back in Rome, the Senate was so pleased it declared a 20-day holiday to celebrate Caesar's victories. Of those Gallic forces who defied Caesar, most of these were killed or sold into slavery. Caesar returned over 20,000 captives to the Aedui and Iverni, but Vercingetorix was not so lucky. He was bound in chains and sent back to Rome where he was imprisoned for six years.
0: For six years, Vercingetorix was imprisoned in the Tulianum, the Mamertine prison, the horrible hole in the ground that used to be a cistern for a spring where Rome's most infamous enemies were strangled. This was a big, powerful person who lived this powerful life. And to just have the last six years of it be so constricted is just horrifying to me.
1: The Vercingetorix who came out of that hole six years later, who would have been put in armor to make him look like this fierce Gallic warlord, would look nothing like the Vercingetorix who'd actually gone into that prison.
0: No, he wouldn't have been treated well. And I actually think I read somewhere. I'm not sure where and I tried to look this up again and couldn't find it. But I'm pretty sure I read somewhere that when Caesar actually did have his triumph, he was mad at his prison keepers, Vercingetorix's prison keepers, because they hadn't kept him in very good condition. And now he wouldn't look all fierce for the parade.
1: Exactly. And that was a huge disrespect to Caesar's honor. Right, because it's about Caesar. Because it's all about Caesar. It's not about him at all. And when we did the research for the Stark family, this reminds me of what happened to Drusus, the one who was put into prison and he was starved to death and he resorted to eating his mattress stuffing. And there was a time when they were like, well, we don't actually think he did anything that bad. We could just like let him go. And the Senate universally said, we actually can't because what's been done to him, we don't think he can go out into the world anymore.
0: Well, we don't want the public to see him because it's just so horrific what's him. And he was next in line to be an emperor. Right, and that was after only two years. Vercingetorix had to deal with this shit for six years. So that's another thing I just carry with me for some reason. Vercingetorix in the horrible hole for six years.
1: Well, and also he knew that by surrendering to Caesar, he would be at the mercy of Caesar. And we looked at the Gallic culture, and the Gallic culture was all about having an honorable death in battle. To actually leave himself to be deprived of that honorable death in battle and then spend six years languishing in a hole where he can't see the sky, it probably was his... nightmare.
0: Yeah, but it shows the depth of his selflessness in that moment. Also, he was doing this because he was hoping that by this act of surrender, Caesar would be more merciful to his people. And it's possible that the reason Caesar surrendered those 20,000 captives back to the Aedui and the Arverni was because of Vercingetorix's sacrifice. Like, it made him feel more charitable towards those people. I don't know. There isn't a direct line in the sources about that, but you could imagine.
1: Maybe. I hope that's the case. It's impossible for us to know.
0: And you can go visit the Mamertine prison still today. I haven't been there, and I'm getting my info about what it's like from written sources and pictures on the internet, so there might be people who are listening to this right now and who've been there and who might know a little bit more about this than me. But from what I understand, there were two chambers in the Mamertine prison around Caesar's time. The horrible hole and the chamber just above it, which probably wasn't much better. Sallust, a chronicler who was alive during Caesar's lifetime, describes the prison like this. Quote, in the prison, when you have gone up a little way toward the left, there is a place called the Tulianum, about 12 feet below the surface of the ground. It's enclosed on all sides by walls, and above it is a chamber with a vaulted roof of stone. Neglect darkness, and stench make
1: it hideous and fearsome to behold. It wasn't meant for long-term imprisonment. It was meant to be a place of execution. But Vercingetorix was kept there for six years. He got to see the sky again briefly when he was led through the streets in chains during Caesar's triumph in 46 BC. Then, he was lowered back down into the black pit of the Mamertine prison, where he was ritually strangled. And this ritual strangulation, I just, you have to explain it to me, I don't understand it. We
0: definitely got a little wrapped around the axle about the ritual strangulation in our last episode that talks about this which was julius caesar and the devil three-way when we talked about it during the catiline conspiracy and i actually found some information jen that might answer your questions about it and my questions thank you right so we were we were both kind of wrapped around the axle about this ritual strangulation the last time it came up one of us more so than the other one I got really into it as well, and it really just kind of gnawed at me. It's like, what is ritual strangulation? How does this differ from regular strangulation? I mean, I'm not seeing anyone else particularly interested in this. Maybe there are people out there who know about sources that I don't know about, but the translations of ancient sources really don't provide a lot of detail on this, and I didn't see much scholarship on the ritual strangulation in modern sources I was looking at either. The only place I could find someone else really interested in the ritual strangulation was on a blog. Take this with a a grain of salt like everything in this podcast, but this is from a website called in Monumentum Est*, An Antipodian View on Classical Greece, Rome, and the Mediterranean, and it's written by someone named Scott McPhee. Scott McPhee, according to his website, is a PhD student in ancient history and classics at the School of History, Philosophy, Religion, and Classics at the University of Queensland. So he knows a lot more about this stuff than we do. This isn't about Vercingetorix. It's actually from the original Latin of Sallust. He's a really valuable source because he lived during Caesar's time. He's talking about the executions in the Catiline Conspiracy, if you listen to Julius Caesar and the Devil's Three-Way, that's where we talk about the Catiline Conspiracy in more detail. What you need to know for the purposes of this is that the Catiline Conspirators were executed exactly as Vercingetorix was and in the same place, lowered down into the black, gaping mouth of the Mamertine prison and ritually strangled in the dark. Scott McPhee approaches it not from the archaeology, not from carvings or ancient writers in translation. Instead, what he does is he finds clues about what went on with the ritual strangulation in the Latin language itself. And I found this so fascinating because I've never seen anyone else care this much about the ritual strangulation, and I just had to share it with you guys. And it's kind of a long passage, and we have to quote the whole thing because of the specifics of the Latin language that he gets into. So I really hope, Scott McPhee, if you're listening somewhere that you don't mind, immense shout-out, and we will link to you in the show notes, but we just felt the need to share this because we think it was so great. So this is a quote from Scott McPhee. Quote, it's funny sometimes how Latin terms are glossed. Consider." Sallust, and this is me attempting to pronounce Latin, this is what he says about the Catiline conspiracy, this is a quote within the quote, In aum locum postquam dimissus est lentulus vindicis rerum capitalium quibus preceptum erat laqueo gulam fragere. This is typically translated as something like the following, When lentulus had been let down into this place, executioners to whom orders had been given strangled him with a cord. So this is still Scott McPhee. He says, the translation above is almost exactly the one on Perseus, which is the site where we get all the free translations, which is the 1899 English translation by J.S. Watson. But he has glossed over the words executioners above as certain men. But even then, the word executioners is a certain type of gloss. The Latin in question is vindices rerum capitalium, which is far more literally something like the revengers of the capital matters, or perhaps more favorably, but still rather cryptic capital revengers. Anyway, this is where we get the idea of capital punishment or capital crimes from. So capital revengers, which is a really interesting turn of phrase. So he goes on to say this, quote, a strange turn of phrase, perhaps, but how exactly did Lentulus die at the illegal order of Cicero? And remember, Cicero was the one who ordered the conspirators executed without trial. So that's what he's talking about. Is that strangled with a cord? Well, yes, but no. In fact, it's far more brutal than that. So this next passage, he really Really goes into it, and we are still quoting Scott McPhee here. Enormous shout out to this guy. I did not write this. Quote: The Latin words for the method of execution are laqueo, gulam, frigere. Laqueo is ablative laqueus, meaning noose, snare, etc. Let's say by a noose. Gulam is straightforward; it's accusative gula, the throat or neck. Now that leaves the verb frigere. Oh yes, perhaps strangled, but not exactly. There's some typical archaizing going on here by Sallust that's altered the form of the verb somewhat. It's really. Frig- frango frangere fregi fractum and look at that supine, fractum, which is where we ultimately derive the word fracture. And indeed, frango means more like break, crush, grind, bruise, and also by transference, violate, subdue, soften, and weaken. Lentulus is having his throat violated. This being ancient Rome, it's not a noose breaking the neck as in a 19th century long drop hanging, it's a rather brutal garroting, pure and simple. Again, this is more Scott McPhee. So sure, while it might be fine to think that certain men strangled him with a cord, but that makes it sound rather more pleasant a death than the way it surely was, and Sallust had just finished describing how disgusting in darkness, filth, and smell of the dungeon where the execution took place actually was. Therefore, I think it's far more fitting to think that in the dark and fetid pit of the Tulianum that the capital revengers crushed his throat with a noose. So, Jen, does that answer your questions from the last time we talked about the horrible hole?
1: No! (laughs) It doesn't? Why not? Because how did the strangling person get down there? Like, this is my big thing. Like, you put someone into the hole, and, like, they're supposed to die in this horrible hole. They're stinky, there's no sky, etc. But who's the guy with the noose, and how did they get down there, and how did they get out?
0: Okay, so the capital revenger is the guy with the noose. And as for how they got in, I mean, I don't know. But I'm assuming there's, like, a ladder or, like, a rope. I mean, this isn't the most important part of this story, Jen, like how they got down there.
1: Okay, so then you killed all these people because somehow, magically.
0: Not magically, it's with a cord.
1: It's in the dark. You don't know who you're actually strangling because it's so dark. What if they get the cord and they just strangle you and then they pull on the little rope and are like, all right, bring me up. And actually actually, there's someone who is supposed to be in the hole.
0: So you mean what if the prisoner strangles the executioner by accident? Well, they
1: wouldn't be doing it on accident. They'd definitely be doing it on purpose.
0: Oh, or like just they turn the tables. I mean, that would be, I would love it if that actually happened, but I don't think that happened.
1: I mean, it probably didn't because the prisoners were so weak and were probably like, please kill me.
0: Gosh, that's a horrible, depressing thought. Well, we've
1: gone into the Mamertine prison. What did you think was going to happen?
0: Right. It's depressing down there. I mean, here's a thought, Jen. What if, once you're a Capital revenger, right, you go down in the horrible pit, you strangle the person you're supposed to strangle, and then they don't let you up because somebody always has to be in the horrible
1: hole. Oh, that is terrifying.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like the Praetorian Guard, and there always has to be an emperor, so if there isn't one, they have to make one.
1: So guys, here's the thing. what are the ancient history fangirl rules. Don't work for the Carthaginians. There's no gift basket good enough. If the elephants are drinking, you should also drink. And, uh, do not take the job as a capital revenger and get lowered into a hole and assume you will be brought back out.
0: Someone is, like, hiring capital avengers on craigslist or something don't answer the call
1: (laughs) and also if you're keeping a fox in your shirt tell someone
0: right (laughs) tell someone. It's still a mystery as to how the Capitol Avengers got into the hole, but I think we've solved a few problems.
1: Okay. And what happened to the rest of Gaul? It was, as Caesar described in his commentaries, divided into three parts. During the eight years Caesar was in Gaul, his actions led to the death of approximately one million people, not counting those who later died of disease or famine. The enslavement of a million more. By some estimates, as many as one in four people in France and Belgium were killed or enslaved in this conflict. Somewhere in south-central France, just outside the Auvergne territory, an unnamed group of Gauls broke and buried an enormous cache, over a dozen swords, iron spearheads, scabbers, shields, ten bronze helmets, iron animal sculptures, a cauldron, and seven great carnices, all broken into more than 500 pieces, as was the custom for sacrifices to the gods. Perhaps all the treasure of a once noble Gallic family or small tribe that had been defeated in Caesar's wars. It would not see the light of day again until two thousand four. And as for those who survived and weren't enslaved, Gaul would stay a province of Rome for about 538 years. Soon after Caesar's conquest, the children of prominent chieftains were sent as hostages to Rome in the thousands, and they came back Romanized, if they came back at all.
0: In the coming centuries, Gaul was Romanized. The ancient culture of pre-Roman Gaul melded with that of the conqueror to become something new, Gallo-Roman culture. This culture dominated all levels of society. The religion of the Druids was suppressed, went underground and eventually vanished, along with all the knowledge the druids carried in their heads. Their ancient epic stories, myths, and songs disappeared from memory. Their language was dead by the 6th century AD. It combined with Latin and eventually evolved into a new romance language, which became French. Gallic religion melded with Roman religion until you could barely see more than the contours of what had been before.
1: Gallic people began writing things down, using the Greek and Roman alphabet. It's here that most of our inscriptions of the Gallic language come from. Rich Romans built villas in Gaul, similar to those in Italy, supplanting the traditional Celtic houses. One assumes they froze in the winter. Yeah, because not the same environment. The Romans divided Gaul into three large provinces, and then further divided those provinces into smaller and smaller units, culminating in the pagai, a word that evolved into the French word pays, which means countryside. These more or less corresponded to older tribal divisions. These Roman divisions would eventually be used as the template for ecclesiastical dioceses that came later with Christianity. Map would stay more or less unchanged for almost 2,000 years, until the French Revolution, starting in 1789.
0: The Pagai may have been based loosely on ancient tribal boundaries, but they were ruled in the Roman fashion, with Roman leaders and Roman administrative practices. No more could Gallic leaders seize their own destiny. Military glory was to be had only by fighting in Roman wars, and families sent their sons to fight in the Legion. Slowly, as the region adopted Roman language and customs what had been before was plowed under. Cucullin was dead. Vercingetorix was dead. The named and nameless heroes of La Ten were dead. They had done everything they possibly could. Woe, as Brennus would say to the vanquished.
1: So that's it for this week. We'll be back in two weeks. And in the meantime, come and find us on Twitter, Ancient Hist Fan, or Instagram and Facebook, Ancient History Fangirl.
0: And check out our Patreon. We mentioned this at the beginning of the episode, and we're going to bring it up again. Your support through the Patreon makes a world of difference to us. We're hoping it'll someday give us the freedom to prioritize the podcast, to invest more in this podcast, and bring you more content.
1: Yeah. Don't you want more episodes from us? I think you do. Yeah, more uplifting episodes about the ancient world. I'm going to pick an uplifting episode.
0: (laughs) Are you, though? I mean, I know what's on your docket.
1: (laughs) (laughs) There are some very uplifting moments. The beginnings of my episodes are always uplifting.
0: (laughs) I'm not going to (laughs) necessarily refute that, but I don't know that I agree.
1: (laughs) Anyway, you can also show your support in other ways. Visit our Ko-Fi account and kick us a few bucks or leave us a nice review. Reviews really matter. They help us move up the algorithms in whatever podcatcher you're listening to us on. And, you know, they make us smile. It helps our keep our morale up. They really do. The amount of times, like, one or the other will text each other usually at a ridiculously late time in their time zone, being like, oh my god, we just it's this amazing thing it really helps keep us going if you don't want to leave reviews tell a friend tell two we're still building our audience and every little bit helps and we appreciate it so much thank you
0: thank you so much for listening and we will see you in two weeks